Ofcom. And this is another um, election, another episode in our election series. But because of the broad expertise of our guest, we'll start with domestic Israeli politics and then move on and address a range of international issues as well. Our guest today is Nadav Eyal. Nadav, thank you so much indeed for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Nadav is one of Israel's most respected Israel analysts and an award-winning journalist. For many years, he was at Channel 10 as their international affairs editor and now a columnist on the most popular daily newspaper, Yediot Achronot. I should remind our audience that the current holder of the mandate to be prime minister is also a former columnist of Yediot Achronot. I should also like to, to, to make the connection that Nadav has a strong UK, um, I won't call it a bias, but a strong UK connection, having lived and studied uh, in London uh, several years ago. And he's also been a great friend to Bicom over the years, of which we're very most appreciative. Uh, Nadav is also the author of an excellent new book, which is, uh, which, which is Revolt. Um, it, it explores the, the, uh, the backlash to globalization by marginal groups across the world. And it's been endorsed by Bill Clinton and Yuval Noah Harari. And, we'll, uh, and it's actually out in the UK, I think, just this month. So uh, we'll, we'll get onto some of that as well later, later on in this session. But I think we should start and kick off with Israeli politics. And obviously for people following it would have seen another incredibly dramatic week here in Israel. We saw yesterday the president again holding consultations and in the end of the day, making the statement to formally hand over the mandate to Yair Lapid for the first time. So if we can start, uh, Nadav, and talk a little bit of tactics, now that Lapid has the mandate, what do you think he's going to do? Does he go now to Bennett straight away, pay the price and close the deal? And is Bennett actually going to be the next prime minister? Uh, thank you so much, uh, Richard. It's always a pleasure to speak with Bicom and with people who support Bicom. Um, Basically, uh, Lapid is the first person to receive the mandate since Benjamin Netanyahu became prime minister, since he, became, he began his, his reign uh, more than a decade ago. Uh, Lapid is the first person to receive the mandate with a majority, at least on paper, to form a government. So this is the closest we've been in more than 10 years in replacing the prime minister. Uh, it's a watershed moment for Israeli politics. And everything right now does not depend on Lapid. Lapid has the mandate from the president because he had more members of Knesset that recommended him. But everything is dependent on Bennett and specifically on five members of Knesset which join Bennett in his party. So I should explain that we have, of course, 120 members of Knesset and Bennett just got seven, including himself. And one of those seven just defected uh, the day before, uh, so, sorry, not the day before, yesterday, but yesterday, and announced that he's not going to support uh, government with, with Lapid. So we're down to six. One of them is Bennett himself. And then there is another five. Never in the history of Israel did we have a condition like this. It's extremely exceptional that instead of the two main parties producing, one of them producing a nominee for prime minister, because of a sort of a, a deal to have a rotation on the prime ministership, we might have a prime minister that has the support only of six members of Knesset. This is just one anom anomaly in a, a deeply fractured political system after more than a decade with, with Netanyahu. 
To your question, Richard, uh, Lapid and Bennett has, have been talking. They are, are in great personal relations. They're the same generation. Uh, they've been speaking together with Gidon Saar, another leader of a right-wing party which rejects Netanyahu. They've been speaking all along. And their plan has been really clear to try and form a government. And it was very obvious that Lapid is willing to step aside, although he has 17 members of Knesset and he's the second largest party in parliament, to step aside because he needs Bennett in order to secure the majority. Bennett's uh, strategy from the beginning was exactly this. He wanted not to be penciled in in any one of the blocks. He didn't want Netanyahu to sort of think about him as someone that ought to support him. He briefed journalists all the time about the possibility of he himself becoming prime minister in a government without the Likud. So this is by no way a surprise. This is exactly where he wanted to be. He wanted to be those, uh, you know, the party that everybody needs in order to form a government. Uh, we understood that if he would be, you know, he would be giving those seven seats uh, to Netanyahu, and Netanyahu would be able to secure a 61 majority, then Bennett would have probably gone with him because he's a right winger. But since Netanyahu doesn't have that, even if Bennett supports him, it doesn't have 61, Bennett is left with only one choice, which is to become prime minister, but as a leader of the government that he calls a national unity, but does not include the Likud. Uh, Lapid and Bennett are going to have intense discussions uh, in the, the next few days. They already are in negotiations for more than a month now. And these discussions are going to focus mainly on portfolios, on cabinet ministers, these kinds of things. Uh, but, but the bottom line is that they're trying to form a government. And the main question is, can Bennett supply the goods? And the goods, quite simply, are the members of Knesset in his party. And we, we got sort of uh, uh, an answer yesterday when one member of Knesset of his party defected. And if he cannot hold the line, uh, then the, this government is dead, quite simply. And then we're gonna go to an election. If he will hold the line and that defector will be the last one, then we'll have a government in Israel in a matter of probably less than 10 days. Well, that's what we're that's what we're waiting to see. But can you just kind of expand a little bit further? How, in terms of the numbers, that a, a government based on that uh, Lapid Bennett model still requires the so even with all the centre parties and the and the non Netanyahu bloc still requires some support from either of the two Arab parties. How do you reconcile that? How can they how can they make that work? So I should explain that Lapid and Bennett and uh, Labour and Meretz, which is a left-wing party, and Lieberman and Gidon Saar, which is a right-wing party, but a rejectionist of Netanyahu. Together, everyone together, there is, uh, because of the way that the system is so fractured, is 58. Uh, and of course, in order to have a majority, you need 61. So they're going to have an agreement, probably with Ra'am, which is the uh, is Islamic uh, movement of uh, the Israeli Arabs. And Ram is considered somehow to be more legitimate on the right wing than uh, the other Arab uh, party, which
which is not exactly Arab party, it's supported by Arabs, but also Jews vote for, because for instance, the, the Israeli Communist Party is part of that movement, uh, because they are much more focused on the Palestinian national struggle. And Ra'am, which is the Islamist uh, or the Islamic Arab party, is much more focused on normalization between the state and the Arab minority. Now, this is a new trend. This is a new thing. And pro probably the most important thing historically that happened in this election. Uh, a man called Mansour Abbas, which is the leader of Ram, uh, decided that he's taking his party uh, into any government that there'll be. And his preference actually was Netanyahu. So he set aside all principled issues about occupation, about Palestinians. And he basically said, whatever is good for my community, which is the Arab community in this country, I'm going to do. And I'm going to take from the country as much as I can the way that the ultra-Orthodox are doing it. This is his model, the ultra-Orthodox Shas uh, or the, the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox parties. And I'm going to do my best there. Now, Netanyahu, in that sense, served uh, you know, a higher purpose to, to an extent because he basically legitimized uh, sitting in the same coalition with an Arab party, something that not only the Zionist right wing in Israel rejected for many years, but also the Zionist left wing rejected, basically saying, you know, if they're not ultra orthodox or Zionist, we're not going to sit with them in the, same, in the same government. You know, no Israeli prime minister would do that. But they did have agreements, I should say. For instance, the Rabin government in 1992 had agreements with the Arab parties. But the fact that Netanyahu was willing to do that legitimized this coalition for both Bennett and, and for Lapid. So they will need to have another, uh, some more support from Ram, from, from that is Islamic uh, Arab party from the outside of the formal coalition, but they will have agreements uh, with the government. And the way it's going to work is that when you introduce a government in Israel, you don't need to show the majority of members of Knesset. You just need to show the majority present. So they'll probably show 58 for uh, the government. And then uh, you, you'll have, uh, you know, uh, 54 against. And the rest is, is going to be Ram, uh, which is the Arab party. And they're going to just step outside, uh, basically, and not, not supported. Uh, reactively, so to speak, or positively. Uh, and, and that's the way they're going to form a government. By the way, this is exactly what Netanyahu wanted to do. So Netanyahu's idea about the way this is going to happen was to get the 59 members of Knesset from the right wing, including Bennett and Smutrich, which is the ultra-nationalist, together with some racist elements, uh, to the right of Netanyahu, and to get them all together, that they will amount to 59, and then to get Ram to support that from the outside. So it's exactly the same. Uh, Ram was willing to do that, so that Arab party was, was, was more than willing to support a government uh, with, with Smutrich and the hate groups within it. Um, they had no problem with that. But the problem of Netanyahu, the reason he did not form a government, is because the ultra-right nationalist uh, in Israel, which he conjured, which he made to an extent, because he wanted to hurt Bennett, and he wanted to hurt the other right wing, these uh, people were principled in the sense that they said, 
when not only when we not sit in a government with those with that Arab party, we will not be in a coalition with them. We will not be supported by them stepping outside of the Knesset chambers. We will have nothing to do with any government which is on the record or off the record has any agreement with, with that Arab party. Um, one of um, the rabbis published a, a letter in Israel which got a lot of attention this week. And he basically said, what is a greatest blasphemy? This is an extreme right-wing rabbi, I should say. This is not ultra-Orthodox, regular, mainstream. It does not represent, I want to believe, you know, the mainstream of Judaism, either in Israel or any other place. But I, I should say that he's important. And he controls at least one member of, of Knesset. And he said, what's, a great, what, what's a, a, the bigger blasphemy? Chilul um, Hashem. Supporting a government with Arabs or supporting a government with left-wingers. And he came to the conclusion that Jewish Zionist left-wingers <laughs> are, are a bigger blasphemy than actually sitting in a government with Arabs. So he ordered his people to support a right-wing government led by Netanyahu and the Arab Islamic party so that there would be no government headed by Naftali Bennett, which is an Orthodox Jew with a kippah on his head that comes from the Mafdal, from the you know, Zionist religious sect. National religious. Society. And he would rather have a government with Arabs and not have a government that the left wing is part of, not led by the left wing. So I think this shows you a lot about the frictions in Israeli society, and in a sense about the madness uh, of where, where we're at right now after four election campaigns in just two years. Thank you for that. Just to clarify on the, on the, the Arab abstention, we, you mentioned that you think Ram would kind of, in a coordinated manner, um, abstain itself and thereby giving a minority government the 58. Is that the same for the, uh, for the six members of the joint list as well? And are they going to get anything out of it in terms of, uh, of a, of a, of a trade-off for their community? That's a great question about the joint list. And, and I should say that the Ram is, again, is the Islamist party, the Islamic party, and the joint list is much more left-wing, progressive, also communist inside but also some nationalist Arab, nationalist secular Arabs, unlike the Islamic ones. Um, they will have some sort of an agreement with the coalition. I don't know what, and I should stress that they recommended Lapid, uh, and they knew why they recommended him to the president, uh, unlike Ram, which didn't recommend him. Uh, and they recommended him because they thought that they're gonna have understanding. Is it going to be a formal coalition agreement? I suspect not because Bennett won't want that. You know, for, for Bennett, for Gidon Saar, two right-wingers, which are really essential for the replacement of Netanyahu, to have any dealings with this uh, either Islamic party or the joint list is too much. So they would rather have just one, you know, that they have to negotiate with and not, and not two. But the abstention is go it might, might happen. Some of them are going to reject the government for sure. For instance, uh, there is a section within the United Arab list 
which is nationalist, uh, pro-Palestinian. And they're going to vote against. This is Balad. They're going to vote against. He's going to vote against that member of Knesset. But it's not really important, Richard. The main thing is, 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 is really simple. Um, uh, if Bennett can supply the goods, we're going to have the government. And Netanyahu is going to go to a position. And it's, uh, you know, it's history in the making. This guy has been in power more than Margaret Thatcher you know, at the time. Uh, he changed the course of Israeli politics. He's changed the course of the region. Uh, if Bennett doesn't have, and these are five no ones, you know, nobody knows in Israel their names, basically. They're unimportant. And they are being pressured with demonstrations, with pressure on online groups, social networks. Uh, these are religious people. They're going to go to the synagogues during this uh, Shabbat. They're going to hear a lot of pressure there. Um, they are being demanded, you know, to withdraw and to, to say to the leader of their party, we're not with you. And if it's, it's, it's a huge drama. If they do that, you know, it's dead, and then we're going to have what Netanyahu wanted. I, 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 I should underline, Netanyahu, from the moment he understood that the ultra-nationalist party of Smutrich is not going to allow a coalition with Ram. He wanted an election. So the game plan for Bibi is an election. That's what he wants to, to, uh, us to get to. And he believes an election, another election, will improve his condition. But at any rate, as long as there is no decision, he keeps his office. You know, he, he, he's still prime minister. So he can go, you know, democratically speaking, from one election to another election, never winning, hmm. never forming a government, you know, it can last for 20 years like this. Now, I don't think it will, but I'm saying this just to, to, to make, you know, as long as there is, he's in office, you know, he makes most of the decisions in the executive branch. Um, uh, so nothing moves in Israel. And it, it, it's a really, you know, it's not a good condition for the country to be at, uh, even societally speaking. But, but still, this is his game plan to have an, another election. Uh, this is where he's, he wants to lead people. So if we take the scenario that they do manage to form this uh, minority government with the support from the outside, beyond kind of an anti-Netanyahu agenda, is there enough to unify these diverse groups? I mean, or, or this, is this government also liable to collapse again also very soon? How stable would it be? It's, it's, first of all, it's liable to collapse because it's going to be a government that moves between Meretz, which is a left-wing party, to people that are settlers in the West Bank. This is something that we never had in Israel uh, in this form, uh, and it's, it's a drama. Uh, and, and, of course, it's going to be threatened. But most assessments are that for the first year or so, it will be stable because these people don't have a choice. Uh, if they form a government, it's going to be stable for the first year, which is a long time in Israeli politics, as you know. Uh, and then uh, second year, we might have trouble. Now, uh, Netanyahu, as part of his <laughs> general reorganization of Israeli politics, so he will continue to be in power forever, uh, passed a law together with Benny Gantz, which is the chairman of uh, the Blue and White Party, and uh, his, his part of the of this government, uh, I, I should remind people that the only reason that we are in an election right now is because Netanyahu didn't want to fulfill an agreement that he signed with Gantz, which is a rotation in the prime ministership. 
So Netanyahu was supposed to be two years, and then Gantz was supposed to be two years. So they changed the law, and I'm talking about a structural constitutional law in Israel. So it's an important, it's the law of the government, it's a basic law. They changed the basic law, so Netanyahu won't be able to escape the agreement that grants Gantz, which is right now uh, described uh, in law as the prime minister in waiting. <laughs> so they actually made this definition. So they, they changed the basic law. So Netanyahu cannot escape giving Gantz the prime ministership because Gantz didn't trust him to fulfill the agreement. But there was only one way to escape this. And that one way was not to pass a budget for the entire state of Israel. Uh, and the reason Gantz agreed for that anomaly or was that he simply did not believe that two months after signing an agreement with Netanyahu, Netanyahu will not pass a budget for the country in order to violate the agreement. Now, what I'm saying is not opinionated about Netanyahu or not, but the, the truth, the facts are that Netanyahu did not pass a budget and Israel does not have a budget. He did not pass a budget so that Gantz will not be nominated prime minister. This is the only reason that he uh, you know, intentionally screwed it up uh, politically. Now, Gantz did not believe it's gonna happen. Now, what's gonna happen in this government formed uh, by Lapid and Bennett is that it's gonna be a rotation again. It's gonna be built on the same model that Netanyahu himself built, but Lapid is gonna make sure, this is the first section of the coalition talks, that this loophole, that if you don't pass a budget, you know, you can actually, uh, you know, disengage from the government and from the rotation deal, this loophole is going to be closed. And when it happens, that means that Bennett is going to be uh, in the government and he cannot escape it. So if he pulls out of the government in the middle, for instance, Lapid becomes prime minister immediately until the election. So there is a violation there. So because Gantz and Netanyahu so much did, had such an amount of distrust between them, they built a system that is very, very hard to escape. And Lapid and Bennett are gonna use that system. And it's actually a system that supplies stability to politics. You only have to have a really very low level of being trustworthy and honest in order to maintain the government in the working. Of course, this didn't happen with Gantz and Netanyahu, but it might happen here. I suppose looming large over all of this, and I'd love your I'd love your thoughts. Is that in parallel to government formation, we have the uh, the evidentiary stage of Netanyahu's trial? What do you make of what we've of what we've heard so far, and how does that kind of interact and uh, and uh, and influence the political process? Netanyahu's trial is the most important and consequential thing for him, and is the only way to understand what's happening in Israeli politics for more than a year now, not because of the trial, but also because of the investigation. So Netanyahu trial is really crucial. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I'll just give you one example. Um, 10 days ago, Netanyahu, who led us to this election in order not to fulfill the agreement with Benny Gantz, this poor general that he made promises to, 
and believed him because he did, didn't know him as good as Yair Lapid, for instance. So he went to Benny Gantz, and what I'm saying is not speculation, you know, it's a matter of fact. And he said, okay, I'm willing to give you the prime minister seat. I'm willing to, you know, eject myself. And he actually said, you know, I'm willing to do what I, I wasn't willing to do, you know, what I violated. Uh, so of course it begs, you know, the question, why didn't we, why, why did we have to go to an election campaign you know, only for Netanyahu to understand that sometimes, you know, you'd better actually uphold the agreement you signed. But Gantz told him, okay, no problem. I have two conditions. Uh, this was not published, I think. Um, the first condition is that you resign immediately from the prime minister seat. Because according to our agreement, if you resign, I become prime minister. And this way, I know that you're serious. So <laughs> Netanyahu told him, what's the second? <laughs> What's the second condition? The second condition is that I hold to the justice portfolio, to the justice ministry. And Netanyahu said, absolutely not. And you have to understand that this is the crucial point. Netanyahu wants the justice ministry. And Netanyahu is, uh, stands in trial uh, for serious corruption charges. And he wants to control the justice ministry. Uh, and, and of course, Gantz immediately said, no way, you know, if I do that, uh, you can do all sorts of things, you know. For instance, Netanyahu spoke about firing the attorney general in order to get a plea deal. So really, we are really in the depths of uh, something that is on the verge of beyond any unwritten rules that there are in, in Israel and in any other place. Um, and many people, I, I have to say, in the right wing will not allow this to happen. So look at the last you know, four election campaigns. Uh, Netanyahu lost the right wing. Uh, he, he held the same number of seats in parliament, grosso modo, but he lost the other leaders of the parties one by one. So first he lost Lieberman. So there was an election in 2019, then second election in 2019, Lieberman decided that he's uh, defecting from the Netanyahu bloc and he's announcing that he, he will not support him and he became his greatest adversary. Okay, then it turned out that some right-wingers are actually voting for Benny Gantz and for the Blue and White Party. And they drew some support and that's the reason that again and again, again and again, they got about 60 or 61 out of 120 uh, in the Knesset. The only reason that they didn't form a coalition is because some of these 61 were the Arab parties and they were so right-wing in the blue and white bloc that they said, oh no, we're not gonna have a coalition with the Islamic party, okay? For this to happen, you needed Netanyahu to grant them legitimacy and he didn't. Then you had Gidon Sal, which decided that he's moving out of the Likud, and he formed his own party. This man is a man who was, you know, uh, I know Gidon Sal for more than 20 years now. Uh, he's the, he was the secretary of government for Netanyahu. It's Netanyahu who made him. And then he was the secretary of government for Ariel Sharon. And he was a senior member of the Likud. He was, uh, you know, the, the education minister, member of cabinet, and he decided to form a party. And on his first appearance on TV, Gidon Sal said, 
I want everybody to hear me really, really well. If you want Netanyahu to be your prime minister, do not vote for me. I will never support this man. Whatever happens, I will never, ever sit in the same government with him. He will never be prime minister as long as I am the leader of this party that I just formed. So he lost Gideon Saab. Then Bennett started explaining in the same campaign. And Bennett is orthodox Zionist right that he, he's not going to go with Netanyahu for sure. Uh, you know, it, it might be, you know, he might go, he might not go, but basically he briefed journalists that he wants to be the prime minister himself. So one after one, he lost the leaders, the political leaders of the right wing while maintaining popular support on the streets. And actually, if you think about it, it's a really, in that sense, you know, uh, Netanyahu did describe himself several times as a touch right. And it's a touch right story in that sense. You know, uh, it's not that uh, he lost, you know, the people who voted for him. He didn't. But he did lose, you know, circles and circles in the right wing, which just cannot have him anymore. And also, basically and principally, reject some of the things that he wants to do because of his personal, you know, criminal kind of, uh, you know, charges against him. Thank you for that. I'm going to, I'm going to leave Israeli politics for a moment and pan out a little bit. And if we start just by looking next door into the Palestinian arena, uh, again, fascinating events going on there. We saw last week that uh, the Palestinian elections were, were cancelled, postponed. We've seen rioting in Jerusalem the weekend before last, 40 rockets fired outside of, out of Gaza, and then a very disturbing uh, shooting attack in the West Bank, uh, um, where we just heard one of the, uh, one of the young men died uh, just yesterday from that. Again, a shooting attack against civilians seems to be a significant uh, escalation in those terms. Where do you see the, uh, the Palestinian arena um, going at the moment? Um, I think that the uh, Palestinian arena is heating uh, up, and it's not because of Israel, mainly. It's because um, the PA, I was in Ramallah, just uh, I wrote about it, I was in Ramallah meeting with Palestinian officials um, three weeks ago. It was very obvious that the PA wants an election because they, they think that they can uh, you know, use this period of calm in order to garner support for the Fatah and, uh, you know, increase their chances vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Hamas. But what turned out is, is that Hamas is relatively strong. The PI is uh, messing up with the COVID-19 affairs in the West Bank. And... Uh, and then the PA and Abu Mazen, after announcing an election, just wanted to do a U-turn. Uh, and this is why Hamas got so angry and Hamas decided to escalate as much as they can. Israel made its own mistakes in Jerusalem and in other places. Um, and I, you know, there are many I'm not going to go to an analysis of what's happening in the, on, on that security sphere, but let's say that the condition of Israel in the last two years of not having a government, uh, not, not a real elected government, and, and having Netanyahu in, in his personal dire condition, that influences also the choices in nominations. There are a lot of mistakes made there. 
And together, uh, what this, this meant is that it was playing into the hands of Hamas. What Hamas wants to do is to have an escalation specifically in Jerusalem. And in order to present itself as the defender of the Palestinian people, then connect an escalation in Jerusalem to an escalation in the West Bank. And we had a terror attack in which one person was murdered uh, the day before yesterday. Uh, and it was uh, probably Hamas initiated. And then they want to connect that with an escalation in the Gaza Strip. And the reason why they want to do that is because they sense that Abu Mazen is weak. Uh, the American, the new American administration is not focused at all on the peace process. Um, as you all know, you know, uh, the Arab countries, mainly in the Gulf, have completely abandoned the Palestinian cause. They're not talking about the Palestinians. And Abu Mazen is old uh, and, 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 and his, his health is not good. Uh, so for them, it's, it's the opening to do what they really want, which is to take over one way or another on the West Bank. Now, they don't want official responsibility for the West Bank because they know how this might end as far as the Israelis are concerned. They just want to have real control. And this is what they wanted from the, these elections. So they fought, for instance, of actually supporting a man called Baraguti, which Israel jailed many years ago for his planning of suicide attacks. And Baraguti comes from the Fatah, he comes from the PA, uh, but he feel, feels that the PA has abandoned him and Hamas wanted to, maybe to support him. Um, it's a very delicate point in time. Um, also, Iran is doing its best to escalate. Uh, because of, uh, uh, you know, actions attributed to Israel against its own nuclear plan. And I should, should say that Iran is most, most probably, the, has the widest, you know, influence on Hamas more than any other regional power. So all of these elements are leading us to a condition that is really volatile in the region. Um, uh, not volatile in the sense of Israel, you know, attacking, for instance, the Iranians' installation in an open bombardment of its warplanes. That's not going to happen. But in the sense of another round, as we call it, another operation in the Gaza Strip, and also losing control on the West Bank. We, we have witnessed years and years of calm and quiet and no, you know, terror attacks in the West Bank in Jerusalem. And that period, it seems, is either over or very much challenged. I mean, a, a, double, a double question, if I can, just kind of expanding on, the, on, the, on that regional picture. Um, how much do you think the Iranians, Hezbollah, Hamas, make a different calculation under a different government? And how different are these, is a new Israeli government liable to act? Or is there kind of a, a consensus in foreign policy with regard to a, the Iranian nuclear program and also kind of the campaign between the wars, um, as it's referred to, against the Iranian entrenchment in Syria? It's, it's a great question. And uh, I think that, first of all, what people need to understand about a new government, if it's going to be a Bennett Lapid government, is that it's going to be tested. It's going to be tested by Palestinians, by Hamas, by Iran. And they're going to try to see uh, how it reacts uh, to challenges. Because they're going to be very minded for this, and because they're going to be attacked, that they're not as vigilant as Netanyahu, 
uh, they're probably going to be more combative, not less combative, but more combative than Netanyahu is. Netanyahu uh, is, um, is very big on, you know, talking about these issues and he's most probably, you know, Israel's biggest presenter since uh, Abba even, you know, um, doesn't speak, you know, ancient Welsh, but, uh, but all the rest, you know, you can tick all the, all the rest of the boxes. And, and he's really uh, brilliant in that sense, but he was also a very careful prime minister in using force. And he walked that line uh, meticulously well. Uh, and if you sort of measure his years in power, how much actual violence, how much formal military operations, how many wars Israel was involved in, you see that he is amongst the least lethal Israeli prime minister that you have. Uh, I don't want to say, and it won't be fair to say that he's big on talking, you know, but he doesn't do or anything like that. That's not what I mean. You know, he did a lot. Uh, he, he really allowed the Mossad and other parts of the Israeli security apparatus to have a Kalenstein war against the Iranians. Um, and, I, and I think in that sense that, that Israel has crossed the line in recent months. Uh, and I'm not, I, the people I speak with are not too happy. I published an interview, I think probably most of the people here don't know that I, I, I published an interview last month with the former vice uh, leader of the, of the Mossad. And they don't usually speak. He just retired. He retired in January. And I published an interview with him in March. And he was actually the person responsible for stealing the Iranian nuclear archives in the Mossad was also the leader of Kisalia, uh, uh, Caesarea, which is, uh, according to foreign sources, uh, the guys who actually assassinate the Iranian nuclear terrorists or scientists. And uh, he, I couldn't even publish his picture uh, in the newspaper because it's still secret. But this guy, just prior to the election, went on uh, you know, an incredible attack on Netanyahu. Uh, and, and on the way that Israel security apparatus is conducting itself, basically saying that the independence of the Mossad and the way it presents itself is under threat. And saying the fact that Israel, in order to have an agreement with Iran, is saying, oh, you need to take care of both the you know, uranium issue, and then you have to take care, but also of the long distance missiles issue. And you need to take care of the Iranian approachment to Lebanon. If that only downgrades the way that we prioritized Iran not getting a nuclear weapon. So he basically said you can't get it all. And when, when you put a bunch of stuff in there, the meaning of that is going to be that you're going to get hurt and you're not going to get these issues, you know, uh, the way you wanted. And, and what he said is that there is no honest discussion. Uh, because uh, people, and that I think was, uh, you know, a great quote for me as a journalist, but not such a great quote for me to hear as an Israeli, basically said, you know, people are trying to align themselves with the leader when they make their professional assessments about security and regional security. And, and, and saying that was, you know, uh, he said, this is the real threat here. And it's because Netanyahu has been in power so many years. 
So, of course, he was accused by the prime minister's office that he says that because he wasn't chosen as the next uh, leader of the Mossad. Uh, but he's been there, you know, for many years. And he didn't give any other interview. He gave one interview, and then he said, it's going to be the last interview I'm going to give in my life. Uh, and that was a message. And many people think that. Sounds like a great journalistic uh, scoop. Um, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd love to take your opinion on uh, on the Biden administration, kind of first hundred days, specifically with regard to Israeli issues and kind of how they're conducting themselves with these proximity talks uh, in Vienna over the Iran talks and uh, and generally, I suppose, Israel-U.S. bilateral relations, how they how, the, how things have kicked off in the new administration. Um, well. Uh... They, they kicked off, uh, you know, with, with no excitement on both sides. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it this way, no excitement. Uh, as far as the Biden administration is concerned, Israel, the region, the Palestinians, this is not a priority, at least for now. A, they got it. You know, Netanyahu is not going to advance the peace process. He doesn't want to do anything. It was Obama who got it first. Then Trump got it. And if you think Trump is too happy about that, he isn't. And now, you know, Biden, Biden didn't need to, to study it. You know, he, he was in too many American administrations uh, to understand that this is not going to work. And B, it's simply not a priority for them. You know, they're talking about, uh, again, a Pacific president focusing on other regions in the world. Um, also, it seems like a problem that is not only unsolvable, but most importantly, you know, why do you need to solve it? Beyond justice, you know, beyond sustainability to the region, why do you need to solve it? Why is it important? Um, and of course, I think it is important because I'm an Israeli and I'm a progressive Israeli. I have, you know, opinions, my opinions about Israel uh, ruling the West Bank. But um, as far as the Americans are concerned, they're not saying it's not important. They're just saying it's not a priority right now. And, and because of that, you know, and, and of course, Biden remembers what Netanyahu did um, in so far of his support for, for Trump. Uh, putting Trump in one of these elections, Trump was, you know, on big posters of the Netanyahu campaign. And it, it, the lead was, you know, Netanyahu in their own league. You know, it was only Trump and Netanyahu. So Netanyahu was formally both endorsing Trump and saying to the Israeli public that he is the local Trump, uh, which I think is not too fair on him, actually. But at any rate, um, I, what we're seeing is that the Biden administration is mainly trying to control Israel so that it's not going to sabotage its reproachment with Iran. And of course, these the interests are not exactly aligned. Uh, Israel does want, you know, the negotiations with Iran to, to explode. Israel does not want an agreement, a new agreement with Iran. Uh, Israel would have wanted the world to be extremely aggressive with the Iranians. Uh, the Israelis uh, still do not believe the Iranians. Uh, Netanyahu is leading the security apparatus to, to a place in which He's actually said to people who went to Washington, I'm not willing for you to sit in a room and start discussing the articles of the new JCPOA, a new agreement with Iran. Our position is simply no, no uh, to this agreement. 
But, you know, he's not calling the shots about that. Uh, Washington is determined to have an agreement. The general assessment in the world is that they're going to be an agreement. And uh, I have to say that, you know, former IDF chiefs, for instance, Eisenkort, you know, uh, are saying that when there was an agreement, the Iranians stood by the articles of the agreement. This is, you know, what they said. Um, but, but Netanyahu thinks strategically that this is not the way to go. Um, at any rate, Washington is waiting. Uh, they're waiting to see if, he, if he's going to be the prime minister. Of course, they're praying he's not going to be the prime minister. They don't want to see him uh, too much. They will if they need to. But I don't think that people around, you know, for instance, in Israel, they don't understand how toxic Netanyahu has become for Democrats. And when I say for Democrats, I don't mean, you know, uh, Ocasio-Cortez. I don't mean uh, Ilhan Omar. I, I mean mainstream Democrats. And you could see that with APAC not managing to have, uh, you know, a, a speech of, of Democrats, candidates. Uh, in the primaries, they didn't get those speeches as they did before, because sections of the Democratic Party completely reject this and see this as support for Israel's occupation policies, so forth and so forth. Um, and for Biden, you know, Biden will meet an Israeli prime minister, of course, shake his hand and everything. But between this and calling him on the first and second or seventh day, or, you know, 12 days of being president, there is a difference. And Israel of Netanyahu is right now really down, down below in the priority. Thank you. So in honor, honor kind of staying on the international track, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, your new book. Um, you, it, as I said in the introduction, it's about a pushback to globalization that you define as a revolt. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit, just expand what you mean by that and maybe give us a sense, a couple of examples of how this continues to play out in the international arena. Um, so, um, Revolt uh, is, is a book of mine that uh, it's, its first version appeared in Hebrew in 2018, became a huge bestseller in Israel. Uh, and then it was sold and it, it appears or is appearing in about a dozen countries right now and sold to much more. We just sold it, it to Vietnam. Uh, it was endorsed by both President Clinton, Yuval Noah Harari, and got uh, great reviews in places like uh, Germany and Italy and has appeared in the UK uh, the week before last week or last week even. Uh, is available everywhere, basically. Uh, and the main theme of the book is talking to people about the way that their life has changed and is threatened, but, but by what I label globalization. But I, I talk about globalization in the widest form of the liberal order itself. And I go from conversations with racist, you know, anti-Semites in Greece to neo-Nazis in Germany, to just middle classes in the US, um, to childless couples in Japan. And I walk between how unsustainable, uh, you know, our, our planet has become for species and, and, and in terms of extinction, to how unsustainable it has become in fighting pandemics 
speaking specifically about COVID-19. And what I try to show like a pointless picture is how all of these stories amount to one appearance, which I label revolt. People everywhere in different sections of society and on different levels of interest are rejecting power structures because they deem them irrelevant, corrupt, or simply hollow. Uh, our political leaders present a facade of control and reliance, of safety and security, but they do not hold the power anymore. Whether it is a financial crisis that simply is overflowing from the US to the rest of the world becoming a huge economic crisis all around the world, causing you know, the deaths of many. Uh, we, we just don't see them. We don't calculate what happened after the 2008, 2008 crisis. Or whether it's uh, an outbreak of an epidemic that becomes a global pandemic, our leaders keep on telling us that they are in control. But the truth is that they have lost much of their control. Uh, when I wrote the book, there was no slogan like, uh, you know, breaking, uh, uh, replacing the police. Uh, th th there was no idea of uh, uh, maybe policing should change forever. Uh, but this is but, but one example for a power structure, in this case, you know, American police, which is deemed both racist, illegitimate, unsuitable for the challenges of our time. And the same can be said about our tax systems. And what I write in the book is that people choose, not all of them, not most of them, but large sections of our societies choose revolt because simply it's not sustainable anymore. It's not sustainable, not in terms of climate change, but, but also in, the, in terms of, of their political system. And I try to explain how it is not sustainable. What is the common thread? One of the criticisms of the book sometimes is there is no common thread, you know? And I say, no, in a world of globalization, there is a common thread here. Uh, and, and, and I talk about it. I talk about something I call global consciousness that is arising and it's changing everything. And I, I tried to do this through these conversations that I had as a journalist and experiences. Some of them are really quite unique. One of them that opens the book, I'll just give one example, is how from Israel, I, I, I got a, a Pakistani newspaper headquarters to be sacked and attacked uh, simply because I interviewed Shimon Peres. Um, I met a Pakistani friend uh, in a, a seminar organized by the US acting its, in its, as, uh, in its uh, role as a superpower. And uh, that Pakistani friend wanted maybe to get an interview with an Israeli official. And I was with good relations with Paris. And Paris was always very eager to give interviews to countries that have no relations with Israel, of course, because this was the kind of person, great person that he was. And uh, I, we didn't have a, a phone connection between Pakistan and Israel. We still don't. We still don't. We don't have a phone connection. It was back in 2004. Uh, and then I told her, you know, send me through email, which we did have, send me through email your questions. I'm going to interview him. I did. And I sent her the questions back and she published it. It was uh, the 
news of, of the world group, the Jung group, the biggest uh, you know, news media company in the country. And they published it front headline. And the next day, a, a gang of two dozen armed men stormed the building and, and tried to set it on fire. And I think it's a good example. This, this is the kind of stories I bring in the book, but it's a good example of how globalization threatens local power structures, which react sometimes violently in order to defend their control of our narratives or our conversation in politics and how they cannot do so completely. But then if you ask, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that today we don't have relations with Pakistan, A. And B, there was no way that this would have happened if you didn't have you know, a newspaper that wanted to earn money doing that through publishing really interesting stories and having people actually buying the newspaper on the stand. And so capitalism plays a role here in spreading those ideas. This is what I analyze uh, in the book. And uh, I, I asked um, uh, earlier, for uh, to share with you the the link. Yeah, it's on the it's, it's, it's on it's on the it's on the chat now for everyone to see. Yeah. So uh, I'll be happy if you uh, read it and buy it uh, to your friends. And I, I talk about my, the Jewish experiences in the book, both of my family, my grandfather who lost his family in Europe because in the Holocaust because uh, uh, the British mandate would not grant them certificates to uh, go to uh, Palestine. Uh, he lost his wife and, and child, and, and I talk about the Jewish experience, but also about the Israeli experience. I want. I mean, you're, you're, you wrote the book originally in Hebrew um, before the coronavirus uh, outbreak, but I wonder, just on, on reflection, you mentioned kind of how how that affected your theory. If there's a pattern of kind of uh, authoritarian governments uh, failing to deal with it, or if a connection between anti-globalist forces. And, uh, and the distrust for science and authorities. Yeah, I, I think that uh, one of the things, one of the mistakes made is trying to describe the revolt as either a populist wave, which is so, something you probably heard, but a populist wave is just, and it's a bump in the road, you know, it's, it's just sort of a wave, or simply talking about the deconsolidation of democracies. And I think both are wrong. First of all, I don't think that Trump was a populist. I don't think that because Trump himself defined himself as a nationalist. The only ism that Trump used was nationalism. And I always suggest to listen what people say about themselves in order to understand what they really are. And he wasn't a good populist anyway, because he didn't try to change the hierarchy of power structures in society. So populism is about upwards, downwards. It's about who's up and who's down and who controls the resources of society. That's what populism is about. And he wasn't about that. He was about who's in the group and who's out of the group, who should be here in the room and who shouldn't be and how I'm gonna build a big wall to make sure you know, that Muslims and Hispanic are not gonna enter. So he was truly a nationalist. Uh, the reason that people use the term populist is because nationalist was just too tough of a word. It was too tough of a definition for them. Um, it was just uh, a trend among elites, uh, liberal elites, to use populism because they were afraid, I think, to look into the abyss of what really has happened in democracies. He was 
uh, and still is a nationalist in my mind. By the way, I didn't think that Princess Boris Johnson is, is a nationalist, but that's a completely different discussion. I'm sure that everybody here has very strong opinions about that uh, either way. Uh, uh, but, but if you look at, at uh, democracies, then you see also that authoritarianism is also really very much threatened. If you look at Russia, if you look at China and what the Chinese need to do in order to keep their society in control, you know, having the widest surveillance plan in the history of humankind, uh, just trying to keep it in bay, at bay, um, then what you see is that all of these power structures are threatened because something much bigger is happening here. And it has a lot to do with social networks and with what I label global consciousness. And one example is Jasmine. Uh, so during uh, the Arab Spring, uh, Jasmine is of course the symbol of Tunisia. And at a certain point, uh, Chinese uh, activists, democracy activists started to use Jasmine as a code for democracy. And of course, Jasmine is really an important flower in Chinese tradition. And you have Chinese presidents, there's a famous Chinese poem that Chinese presidents sometimes quote. And so they had to go to the length of erasing every mention of Jasmine on WeChat, which is a sort of a, you know, a social network or a purse, electronic purse in China, really big, much bigger than anything we have in the West. And they had to erase all mention of jasmine. Then they had to monitor the sale of jasmine flowers. And then they canceled a jasmine fair and so forth and so forth. Because they understood that jasmine lost its, its, its original local meaning and became a, a global slogan. And when these kind of things happen, the ability of authoritarian regimes to control narratives and to lead directions is really limited. And the question that I ask in the book is relatively simple. Are liberals going to use the energy of the revolt, basically of many, many people feeling that their life is not sustainable, that the power structures ruling them are not legitimate or are hollow? Are, are we liberals going to use this power of the revolt in order to harness it for real change? And I opened the book with a quote by Frederick Douglass, if, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. So is this what, what's going to happen? Or are we liberals going to allow the energy of the revolt to be harnessed by the, those folks, you know, uh, anti-vexer, charlatans, nationalist, racist, people like Nick Griffin, which I interviewed in the time, and, and I bring those quotes in the book very critically so. Um, and he, he, he wanted to meet me uh, because he basically wanted to offer a ceasefire between Jews and between nationalists. And he spit all his hate. And, and I, you know, I talk about that meeting in the book. I also interviewed Marine Le Pen, a bunch of really uh, unpleasant people as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Uh, but I, th I thought that bringing what they said critically in not in a sort of a news item, but, you know, in, in a wide ranging book about about this, this bunch of people who are trying to fight progress is really important. And it's important because in order to fight them, you need to understand what their vehicles are. And they understand really well one thing, 
in order to destroy the liberal project, you need to destroy globalization. You need to annihilate cooperation between countries because this is the basis for that consciousness rising. And they need, first of all, to replace it with a nationalist project. And I try to explain that at length uh, in the book. But I do that mainly through, through stories. So I, I'm still a journalist and not, you know, uh, uh, an academia uh, kind of guy. And, and, and the way to do it, I think, best is through stories. Fantastic. Well, I encourage people to go and find their, their coffee. We're, ne we're, we're nearly over, and I, and I apologize we haven't got to everyone's questions, but if we can just allow one question in from the audience, uh, I, I, I see a hand up from, from Isaac Kay. Um, if you could ask one more question, please. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Isaac, if you unmute yourself, you'll be able to ask your question. Okay. Um, perhaps not. I'm, I'm, I'm going to answer the, these few questions that I have on the chat box. Do you want me, me to do that in the meantime? Sure. Um, okay. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so uh, uh, Lee is asking, don't you think that uh, this is an initial stand by the Arabs, which they will later change to a more hard line against Israel and demand other unrealistic things from Israel concerning Palestinians? Uh, uh, well, Lee, I, I don't know. If you're talking about the Israeli Arabs, um, um, no, I, I think that they're going to be really focused on civilian issues. Uh, right now, they don't care too much about the Palestinians, at least not the Islamic movement. Uh, the, the Palestinians treat them as traitors. Uh, if there have been uh, a first, second, third preference system for voters in the parties in the event of a deadlock, could be referred to, might Naftali Bennett not have secured a higher proportion of seats than the seven, now six that he might. Well, Jacob, that's, that's possible, but that's, that's not uh, the system uh, that we have, uh, you know, um, or, or either I didn't understand the question. How did the loophole work exactly, Marsha's asking? Oh, the loophole was really simple. Uh, if they don't pass a budget, you know, the government goes to an election. So that was the loophole. And so he basically, Netanyahu, when forming the government, he already knew he's going to violate the agreement he just signed, for, you know, hours ago. So he didn't allow his finance minister to have a budget. And what I'm saying is not speculation. It's on the record, you know. Yeah, they, they stopped making kind of excuses for that and basically said we didn't want him to be prime minister and he should have never been prime minister and he couldn't be prime minister and then we said okay you know but you agreed to that and they said okay but he shouldn't and we discovered that he's really you know he doesn't have the capability to be a prime minister and now two weeks ago Netanyahu went ahead and, and offered him to be prime minister again uh, can you please expand on the position of the ultra-Orthodox in the current political climate? Yes, Stanley. Their position is that they're with Netanyahu all the way. They're sworn for Netanyahu. And if there would be a different government, they might reconsider. But they're not going to... They The ultra-Orthodox are more Netanyahu than the Likud. Okay, I, I think I made it as clear as I can. I said, yeah, can you please say that Boris Johnson is uh, a nationalist? No, I'm, I'm not going to say that. I, I don't feel you know, qualified enough to do so. And I also don't want to get myself into too much trouble with this crowd. Uh, I, I need to think about it. But I want to say that uh, something, I, I do want to say something about Royce Johnson. 
Um, I think, of course, the Brexit was, of course, I think that the Brexit was, uh, you know, a nationalist overture. Okay, I'm not saying that, it, you know, it was a nationalist overture, but I, I don't think, you know, when I'm judging what Boris Johnson has been doing, I don't think that beyond the Brexit, you know, he's, he's sort of maintaining that uh, to the extremes of, of, of Trump. But some of you would say, ah, <laughs> uh, because he's smarter than him. Yeah, uh, yeah he is. Uh, but the way he, he aligned himself so happily with Biden, <laughs> not that he had any choice, but, um, you know, in terms of values, I think that the UK, generally speaking, doesn't have the same void that you can see in the U US between Republicans and Democrats, although it, it might seem like that. And I'm saying this, I'm just allowing myself to say that because not only I lived in the UK, but I don't know if Richard said that, I, I'm also, for, at least formally, I'm a UK citizen also, beyond being, you know, and I was born in London, so, uh, yeah. I think I answered, oh, uh, Jeff, uh, in your use of revolt in any way, a hidden reference to Menachem Begin <laughs> and the book. Yeah, when I published it in Israel, so many people said, you know, he published that first. No, no it's not the same. No, I'm, I'm not, it's not a hidden reference to Menachem Begin. Uh, I think it's a great title. And I read Menachem Begin's book. Uh, and um, no, I, I don't think so. Uh, there is no hidden reference uh, uh, there. And uh, uh, for instance, a question I never get from audience which are not, which is not Jewish. <laughs> no, Dav, thank you. I mean, we've got other questions. I don't know if you've got a few more minutes to go on, or if you want. I to, have another uh, to five minutes. Five minutes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So can we can we can we try see some hands? We'll try and get some. If, if Isaac can try and unmute again, we'll listen to him. Otherwise, in, in the meeting? meantime, I'm yeah. Jo John is in Paris. If you unmute Go yourself, ahead. you can ask your question. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, yes. I can. I, I did. I don't have a question, but I do have a question. <laughs> I do have a question, which is about this Lapid Bennett government. How is it going to function if you have to have a consensus on every decision? Let's take um, anything to do with uh, Iran, to do with um, Jordan, to do with the Palestinians. How are you going to govern with consensus when you have the Bennett people and, and even some of the Saar people diametrically opposed to the left, and the center is not going to be able to hold it together, particularly if Bennett is the PM for two years? How is this going to work on a policy execution level? Thank you. First of all, it's a great question that nobody's asking right now. And the reason is because Netanyahu is everything in Israeli politics. He is the center of everything and everything is being judged in accordance to Netanyahu. So uh, nobody's asking real policy execution questions. And I think it's a fantastic question. To answer your question, the truth in Israeli politics is that the main issues are not foreign and security issues. These issues are in a relatively large consensus between left and right. Um, the government is not going to support an agreement with Iran at any rate. Bennett is going to say he's against it. Lapid is going to say, well, maybe I'm for it. But it doesn't really matter in the sense that they're not going to go into a, you know, a campaign 
uh, with that because they know it's not going to help. And, 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 and Bibi is not going to do that either. Um, if they want to strike somewhere militarily, they usually go with what the IDF recommends. And discussions in cabinet are very to the point. It's not that the left wing is always opposed to any military action. This is not the Zionist left wing. And you, should, you, should, you guys should know that, you know, it, it's the same left wing that built the country. You know, it's, it's a very, uh, I don't want to say militarily infused uh, left wing, but Israeli left wing is considered to be much more combative, you know, <laughs> than, than the right wing. And it's a known you know, fact that these governments would be much more, for instance, the Olmer government was much more combative and militaristically adventurous than the Netanyahu government. Uh, so it simply doesn't break, break down like this. They don't need to have necessarily a consensus. There are certain issues that are status quo, for instance, religion, uh, for instance, uh, issues um, you know, as to uh, minor some minority rights, uh, they're not going to move there. But other issues are issues that they want to have agreements on. Uh, Lapid is very centrist, is not left-wing. And if you look at the government, the, the, really the left-wing, which is labor and uh, merits, they're a minority. So just they're going to just be shoved aside. And Lieberman, Lapid, Saar, and to a large extent Bennett are really centrist. And Bennett is not going to have an extension in the West Bank. He knows that. Uh, he's not going to lead any sort of right-wing policy maneuver. Uh, everybody knows it's, it's about, they call it a rebuilding, uh, and others call it a refurbishment <laughs> government. So it's, it's, they're not going to do anything too big. They're talking about getting back to normal. This is the main message of this government. You know, BB is unnormal, and we're going to have normality back in this country in the way that we speak with each other, the way we work with each other. Uh, can this work? I, I'm hesitant to say, I'm a journalist, I'm always very skeptical about these things, but at least for a year it can. Um, if we have time for just one last question, Robert Perlman, if you well, can go ahead and unmute yourself. As an extension to the last question, may I ask you, um, where Ram sits in this and how their views could influence the actions of the government to the point of possibly bringing it down, particularly in areas that may relate to Gaza, may relate to Iran, may relate to the instability in Lebanon, the uh, uh, potential instability in, 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 in Jordan too. Uh, are Ram going to follow the main, what you described, centrist line of this forthcoming government? Ram is uh, not going to, um, to do anything to the government as long as it gets the budgets and some legislation changes it once. So it's very limited in scope and, and truly not nationalist in its approach and not regional. Uh, but to your question specifically and very technically, in order to overthrow a government in Israel, it, you need to have a constructive non-confidence vote. So it's not only that Ram will have to vote against the government, they will have to vote for another candidate to form a government. And this is impossible, not because they won't want to do that necessarily, but because the ultra-nationalist 
סמוטריץ' פארטי, won't be within the same vote that, for the same candidate that they support. A priori, they will never do that. That's the reason Netanyahu didn't form a government. It, I, I want it to be as clear as I can. If tomorrow morning, Mr. Smutrich would wake up and understand that he shouldn't rule out the Arabs just for being Arabs, then Netanyahu will have a government in 30 seconds and Mr. Bennett is going to be part of the government. So for 28 days, Mr. Netanyahu tried to convince Smutrich in every way possible that it's fine not to have a government with Ram, but just to have a government that Ram abstains on and Mr. Smutrich won't have it. Mr. Netanyahu even managed to convince the most extreme racist rabbis around to support that government. But Mr. Smutrich still <laughs> won't have it. He won't have it, you know, any sort of agreement with Arabs. Um, so if the right wing is gonna lose power, or if at least if Netanyahu is gonna lose power, he's gonna lose power because Smutrich will simply have no agreement with Arabs. So because of that, simply technically speaking to your question, Robert, uh, it's, it's impossible for them to overthrow the government. What they can do is to lead, uh, you know, to overthrow it through a law of making, you know, uh, uh, an election earlier than it should be. Even that is limited. And uh, the main assessment is that they won't do it as long as they get what they want, even if Israel goes into a military campaign in the Gaza Strip, for instance. But we, we will have to see. Um, at any rate, for the first year or so, it's quite secure. And it's a long time in Israeli politics. A year is like, you know, an infinity and beyond. Of course, the, the, irony, the irony of that being that, uh, that even though Lapid has the mandate now, he may never yet to get to serve as prime minister if it collapses before his, before his time. But we will, uh, we will assess that in, uh, in due course. Um, now, Dov, thank you so much indeed for your generous time today and your fantastic tour de force analysis. It was most appreciated. Thank, thank you, you all so for joining us as well. We hope it was of, of value and stay tuned both to Bicom and Fathom content as we continue to follow this very closely. Thank you all and Adav, thanks so much. Thank you, thank you. Bye-bye.